Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be gathered together like this as your children, learning your word. We are grateful for what you did on the cross for us once for all, 2,000 years ago. And we ask that you open our eyes this evening through your word and your spirit. Help us see more clearly supernatural things and what it means to be undistractedly devoted to you. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we take in your word this evening. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Undistracted Devotion to the Lord, Part 8. We'll jump right in here this evening. Uh, There was a word that really grabbed my attention on Sunday, and that is one of the Greek words for devotion. And as we know, God is going after our hearts. And these are heart issues that we're talking about. Turn in your Bibles again to Acts 2.37. We'll start there. Acts 2.37. And we'll uh, catch up to this word again that we saw on Sunday. And... It, it fits so well, it explains so much of what it means to be undistractedly devoted. Acts 2.37 Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the, Holy, the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So we saw on Sunday this Greek word for devoting, proskartereo, and it means to attend constantly, to stand at the ready, and also persevering affection. I put that in bold for you because I think that's uh, something that's been coming out even before this word has come up in the last couple of weeks, persevering affection. This idea of affection has come up in recent lessons in reference to the affections of our heart, like what's holding our affections, what's, what's uh, captivating, what, what are we concentrating on or giving our attention to and even admiring, maybe improperly. So we're back to what motivates us. We're back to heart issues. And what idols are we possibly holding on to in our souls that grab our affections more than Jesus does? That's a a really important question. It's also a painful question. What are we holding on to in our souls that grabs our affections more than Jesus does? And the Spirit has asked us to be honest about this. He doesn't want us to simply say what we should say. He wants us to be honest so that we can be set free and set free from ourselves, from our own ways that sometimes we don't even realize we're doing. He asked us on Sunday this simple, honest question on the board. What grabs and holds our own affections? What grabs and holds our own affections? What idols do we wrongly hold dear in our hearts, even good things that we make into idols? And that's going to be a major theme tonight, uh, which has been that way off and on at NCC for a while now. What even good things are we making into idols? I read something recently which gave me a new perspective on God's love and what he wants from us. And coincidentally... You know, I mean that facetiously, but it fits right in with 
what we've been learning from the pulpit in this series. And right in with the idea of the Lord wanting to be our first love. And perspective is everything, as we've learned. And as Pastor always says, a change of perspective is always just a moment away, and therefore freedom. So here's what I believe the, share, the Spirit wants me to share with you tonight. We often think of the events of Abraham and Isaac when Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his only son. We think of that as a faith test only. And it certainly was a test of faith. Uh, we're told that in Genesis 22 and also in Hebrews 11. So let's read these passages first so that everyone's on the same page and everyone's familiar with the happenings. And then we'll uh, see where the Spirit is taking us. Go to Genesis 22, verse 1. Genesis 22, 1. Again, we often think of the events of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his only son, we think of that as a test of faith. And it certainly was. Genesis 22.1 Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them Two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gates, the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." We talked a lot about obedience. Turn to Hebrews eleven seventeen for the brief recap we get of this event in the New Testament. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. 
He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So obviously this was a test of faith. Yet as we've studied, faith is related to trust. Even the word believe and faith is related to to trust in some way. Uh, Trusting another person with something. And trust, as we've learned over the years, is a matter of the heart. So just follow along with me here. On the board, you don't trust someone unless you believe that they love you, at least to some degree. You don't trust someone unless you believe that they love you, at least to some degree. In this way, faith and love are intimately tied together. In fact, we might think about faith being a question of whether we believe the love that God has for us. What are we having faith in? Who are we having faith in? The God of love. The God whose name is love. So we might think about faith being a question of whether we believe the love God has for us. And that is for at the moment of salvation and also as we walk with God. So a different perspective on the board about Abraham and Isaac. How about looking at Abraham's test as a test of love as well? We just read the accounts in Genesis 22 and Hebrews 11. How about looking at Abraham's test as a test of love as well? Our God is a jealous God. So says Holy Scripture. He loves us fiercely way beyond what we can possibly comprehend. But one thing we do know, he loves us so fiercely that he gave up his perfect beloved son for us. That's how terribly he loves us. Just try to grab hold of the fact that God loves you that much, that fiercely that he would follow through with that thing that he didn't even ask Abraham to actually follow through on. Our God is a jealous God. The question from God to us is, do we honestly appreciate the love he has shown us or proven to us? Do we honestly appreciate the love he has shown us and proven to us? As we know, Holy Scripture says, God tests the hearts and the motives of man. Do we honestly appreciate the love that he's shown us or proven to us? And this requires testing because we often think we're in one place and we're not, right? We often think we're, we got something understood even, and we really don't. Or we think we have a certain commitment level to God and we really don't. So a lot of this involves testing for it to be revealed and for God to refine us more, as we'll see later on. At times in our lives, the Lord will ask us, are we willing to love him in return as the only one truly important as our greatest love? That is a huge question. It's just a big question that should never be flippantly answered, and we hope that one day we can say yes to that question before he takes us home. Are we willing to love him in return? Remember 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us, right? But that's to all different degrees for us. We start really low, you know, with that little bit of faith, you know, and how much we love God slowly increases, if we're honest. But are we willing to love him in return as the only truly important one as the greatest love of all in our own heart where our affections lie God gives us a lot of grace blessings in this life right I mean anything good we have is 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 from his grace we don't deserve anything of course he gives us a lot of things we don't deserve including people that love us and have loved us 
and arguably the greatest blessings we have are the people in our lives who love us and care about us and people that we love and truly care about. Those arguably, arguably are the greatest blessings in our lives. It may only be a couple people in your whole life that you can say this about. But these people are precious to you. You're very thankful for them. You're very grateful for them. So here's the big question on the board regarding the blessing of loved ones. Are those people and those relationships more precious to you than the Lord himself? Are those people and those relationships more precious to you in your heart where your affections lie than God himself? Where do your affections lie? Who do you give the most um, attention to in your heart? The most admiration to maybe in your heart? Who's your heart focused on the most? That's a good sign of it. Talk about where the rubber meets the road, right? This question. Are those people, the ones you love, more precious to you than the Lord himself? God wants to know, where do your greatest affections lie? Greatest. And he wants to know, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? That might sound a little familiar. But that's what came into my soul as I was, you know, thinking about this question, this testing question. Before his ascension into heaven, the Lord asked this of Peter. Do you love me more than these? In fact, he asked it of him three times in a row. Turn to John 21, 15, just so we can see this question with our own eyes. We're not going to read the whole passage. But talk about a question that delves into your innermost being your heart, your motivation, that explores your affections and where they persevere. John 21, 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In context, Peter was asked to take care of our Lord's sheep as a sign that he loved him. But are we not all asked that question from the Lord? Do you love me more than these? Back to Abraham's test. Was uh, he willing to give up his only son for the Lord? That was the test. Are you willing to give up your only son for me? Do you love me even more than him? Have you ever thought about the testing of illnesses and suffering and even facing death? I'm sure you have. I'm sure we all have in some degree because life demands it. Some of you are going through it right now in our local assembly or you're not able to get here, etc. And you're facing these real tests, uh, tests of the heart even through illness or suffering. Suffering and illness has many purposes from God's perfectly wise point of view. I wonder if they're innumerable. The amount of purposes that he has in suffering and illness. And we often see suffering, whether it's in ourselves or others, as a test of faith. And it sure is. But how about looking at it as a test of love? Jesus demands that we are his first love or there will be discipline. That's how important this is to God. That's uh, the jealous God we have. Jesus demands that we're his first love and if not, there will be discipline. Revelation 2, 4 through 5. 
on the board. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deed you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That's obviously not a good thing. Remove your lampstand out of its place. What's the problem? They left the first love. And God's not happy about it. There's our jealous God once again, and he loves us that much to be this fervent with us. And the thing is, he has every right to be jealous of our love because he's the one that laid down his life for us. Like, when we have jealousy for another, we really don't even have a right, you know, being sinners to take that stand, so to speak. God is perfect, and he laid down his own life for us. So he demands love from us. That might sound funny, but he's like, if you knew, you know, if you could see me now, for example, if you could see heaven, if you could see my son and what he went through, you wouldn't question what I'm telling you. I've loved you with all that I could love you, and I want you to love me back. And all the things you're falling for in the world are traps, and there's such counterfeits, there's such houses of cards, and you don't see that yet, is what God's telling us. That's how fierce his love is for us. He lays it on the line like this to us. And he wants and deserves to be first in our hearts because of the horrible, wonderful sacrifice he made for us. As we've recently been taught, Jesus said, unless we hate our father or mother or sister or brother, even our own life, we can't be his disciple. On the board in Luke fourteen twenty six. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. There we see the issue at hand is love. Love. On the board. Whom do you love more? These precious people God has given you, or your own life, or God himself, the one who gave you all these gifts. Which one do you love more? And it's certainly a faith test, because we can't see God right now. He's not showing himself visibly and physically to us. But whom do you love more is the question. These precious people God has given you, or your own life, or God himself, the one who gave you all these as gifts. Do you love the giver more than the gifts? Or do you love the gifts more than the giver? Or even just as much is inappropriate. And if it's the latter, if it's loving the gifts more than the giver, you may eventually be tested at the proper time. As with Abraham, God was essentially saying or asking, do you love me more than your son? I know Isaac is the child I promised you. I know you love him terribly and look forward to your descendants coming from him, and you should love him terribly. But do you love him more than me? And this should be a painful question for us. A heart-wrenching question, simply because the one asking it died for our eternal salvation. That's why it should be a... It was for me when I first looked at this perspective, and I'm like, you know what, that really... The rubber meets the road. Um, it's a painful question because of the one who's asking it. And the only way to answer the question, truly, is through experience. The experience of facing a loss. We can say the right thing all we want, but that's the only way we'll truly know. 
And at the right time, we may all have our Isaac Abraham type of test, even though it may vary in type. And it's not just a test of faith. It's a test of love. And when we look at it that way, I think it gives us power. It gives us energy because of what God's asking. He's not just saying, do you trust me? He's saying, do you believe that I love you? And do you believe that I'm more important than anybody or anything I've given you? As we know from 1 Corinthians 13, we have been told to abide in faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love in verse 13. We're told to have faith in God. We're told to have our hope in the Lord alone as our anchor, the anchor of our soul. But we're told above all else, clearly above all else, to have love for God and no one above Him. It's not even a question about God's top priority. And that's why we're told to have no idols before Him. At the end of 1 John, we read, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Why? Is it taken away from our love for God? Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. As the first commandment makes crystal clear, the first thing God wants from us is that we love Him. It's the thing He demands, if you will, because of who He is and what He's done. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And then turn back to chapter 5, verse 7. Deuteronomy 5, verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. Who or what? Are you making a God before him in your soul, in your heart? If you think about it, how could we even dare to love someone more than our God and creator and savior? It just makes no sense even. It's foolish. And it's so horrible what we do to him. But thank God for his patience with us. He knows our weakness as we've been studying. And by grace, he takes us step by step. We go from realizing life isn't all about materialism or about gaining things for self. And then while we're thinking we're all spiritual because we finally realize that, then God helps us realize life isn't even about all the truly good things he's given to us, such as family or friends or even brothers in the faith. Life's not even about that. The things that truly are good, divinely good, it's about him. It's about loving Him before all things, even the truly, divinely good things. God really wants to know if we love Him the most, valuing Him above all other people and things in our lives. Back to our definition on devotion. Where do our persevering affections lie? You, you know what I mean by that? Like, you know, in your heart, when things are kind of um, making their way in you, so to speak, what's persevering? What's, what's like constantly on your mind? Who's constantly on your mind? And is it more than Jesus is on your mind? And if we're honest, we got to say, yeah, a whole lot. Where do our persevering affections lie? Who occupies our mind and our heart. And if it's not Jesus, 
which is wonderful, to be honest. We're all in the same boat. If it's not Jesus, well, get on your knees with the Word and the Spirit just a little bit more. Be like, Jesus, I, I want it to be you. Isn't that a great statement or a great prayer? I want it to be you. I really want you to have all my affections. I want your affections, my affections for you to be this much higher than my affections for the person I love the most in this world. Show me, you know, give me more faith, right? And maybe just ask for more love as well. But that's what God hopes to see in our hearts one day, like truly, honestly. Because on the board, God deserves to be far and away our first love. That was in that passage about hating your brother and sister, mother and father, right? It was a comparison thing, as Pastor brought out. You know, that word hate is used because our love for them should be so much lower than our love for the Lord himself, even though it's not. But God deserves to be far and away our first love. That's what he's after. That's what he's trying to take us to that place where that's a reality in our own hearts, where our affections even lie. So there obviously should be no comparisons, no idols before him. Not even our precious children, which we make into little idols. And not even our own lives. Not even our own lives. Do you love me more than these? Maybe that's the right way to look at suffering and illness and facing the possible loss of our own lives or others we love. Do you love me more than your own life? Are, are you going to get mad at me because I'm quote-unquote threatening to take your life now or you have a serious illness? Are you angry with me, God says? Or will you love me more than even the life I gave you? So we might call this the place of sanctification. Do you love me even more than your own life? Do you love me more than the life of your loved one? Are you willing to give it or them up for me, says God? Now, before we panic in our souls, let's remember God promises not to give us anything more than we can handle in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. If you think about Abraham, he was over 100 years old before he got this test. So relax. But if we look at it as a test of love instead of just a test of faith, if we look at these questions on the board, do you love me even more than your own life or, or than someone you love very much in this world? Are you willing to even give them up for me, says God? That is an empowering question because that's what it's all about. And the one who's asking it is the one who truly deserves it and the one who proved his love beyond a shadow of a doubt at the cross. As difficult as it must have been for Abraham, he passed the test, bringing tremendous glory to God before men and angels. Abraham chose to love God more than himself or his precious son. And if you think about it, really, that logically speaking, even from, from a spiritual doctrinal point of view, that's the least we can do is love God more than anyone he's given us. So that's the perspective change that God gave me a few days ago, and it really, um, it really just helped me. And I hope it helps you to whatever degree, you know, it's meant for each person. And it goes right along with what the Spirit has been teaching us in this series about undistracted devotion to the Lord. So, changing gears a little bit, what are we to do with our lives, which are really not our own to begin with? He's purchased us with a price. But what are we now to do with our lives? Obviously, we are to love the Lord with all our hearts, having no other gods before Him. 
and we show our love for him by obeying his command to go out and spread the good news. And in that process of love motivating us to obey his commands, he will sustain us as we've been learning. So turn again in your Bibles to John 4, verse 34. John 4, 34. We obey his commands because we love him. We go out and spread the good news because we love him. We appreciate what he did for us. John 4.34 Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. We have all been called to this wonderful calling to participate in to share the good news, the very news that saved you, the very news that the Spirit made you aware of, convicted you of, and saved you. We all have this privilege, and He wants all of us, each in our own way, to do this thing. And even as a collective body, as we talked about on Sunday, And if God allows us to be dispersed, as he did with the early church, then we are to obey his great commission wherever he puts us. And that goes for all of us. And you know what? Regardless of your gift or what you think you're able to do, quote-unquote, if you love God, he will empower you to do the things that are impossible in your own eyes. He will empower you. Love will motivate you to be able to obey this with joy. If you love him. If you're willing. Turn to Acts 8, verse 1. Acts 8, verse 1. We're all called to obey the Great Commission out of love wherever he puts us, out of gratitude. Acts 8, 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, talking about Stephen in Acts 7, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made long lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Who were these people that were preaching the word, preaching the good news like this? Was it the apostles? Or was it all the believers in the early church at that time? Look again at verse 1. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. All except the apostles left. Who was it that preached the gospel as the church was spread out? Go to Acts 4, verse 1. Acts 4, 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. 
we know from this passage that there were at least 5,000 in the church when the great persecution happened in Acts chapter 8. And possibly there were many more as we're told the Lord was adding to their number daily. So here we see, my friends, God has called all of us in our own way, in our own gifts, to spread His good news wherever He places us. On the board, the Great Commission is not just for evangelists or pastors, as some churches teach, but for all members of Christ's church. We just saw that in Acts 4.4 and 8.4. The Great Commission is not just for evangelists or pastors, as some churches teach, but for all members of Christ's church. If you think about the gifts, all the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the Bible in different chapters, um, we don't have all the gifts. No one has all the gifts. But you know what's funny is we're all called to participate in those things. Like I might not have the gift of mercy, but I'm, I'm called to be merciful to people, right? You might not have the gift of evangelist, but you're called to evangelize. I might not have the gift of helps, but I'm called to help when someone needs help, right? So on the board, you know, kind of take this to heart. It doesn't mean you have to go be an evangelist on the mission field and preach on the stage or something crazy like that. It means do the work of an evangelist. Wherever God places you, wherever God calls you, however you think is best for you to do it, with whomever you think is best to approach, but God will empower each of us to do it. And you know where the power comes from? Loving. As your love grows for Him, and you allow love for Him to be your motivation, you'll desire it even more and more to participate. As we noted on Sunday, you want to feel full, Go out and spread the gospel in your own way and your own personality. And support those spreading the gospel. Pray about the spreading of the gospel. Pray for the opportunity to spread the gospel to certain people in your lives. This is all part of the Great Commission. Even asking God for the power, for the opportunities, for the wisdom. It's a lifestyle that he wants it to be for all of us and a natural way of life for all of us. Not something we have to force or push ourselves to do. He wants it to become something you want to do. How do you, how do you get to that point? Your love for him grows. Your appreciation for him grows. He becomes your first love. Your persevering affections in your heart are more and more towards Jesus. And so it becomes easy to do. Why, why wouldn't you tell somebody about someone that loves you that much? Why wouldn't you brag about them? But it comes back to having faith in His love for us. So at this point, I'd like to share something that happened to me, and I hope it's encouraging to everyone hearing my voice. Sunday night, I went out to a coffee shop to do some reading, and I was outside reading. It was a beautiful night, and I had the chance to look up at the sky and enjoy the beautiful clouds at sunset. And as I'm sitting there alone, I start looking around at the different types of people around me and wondering how many are still lost. And I decided to make what I'll call a strange prayer. At least it seemed strange to me at that time because this was my alone time with the Lord. This wasn't evangelism time. This wasn't me looking for work to do. This was my alone time with the Lord. But the Spirit put it on me to pray, bring someone to me, Lord. Bring someone that I can share the good news with as strange or out of place as that 
seemed to me at the time, I said it. And I went on reading and enjoyed my coffee. I then decided to go for a walk before driving home. After going around the block, I came to the coffee shop and just stood there looking around for a minute, enjoying my surroundings before I was going to rush off, as I normally would have just rushed off. All of a sudden, I looked through the window of the coffee shop, and who is sitting there eating is an old friend of mine from school in a place that he shouldn't have been. He lived three or four towns from there. And I literally did a triple take to make sure it was him because it didn't make sense that he would be in this location. And then when I knew it was him, I laughed to myself about the answer to the prayer I made two hours earlier. So I went in and chatted with him for a while. And even though he's an unbeliever, you can keep him in prayer, my friend Greg. But even though he's an unbeliever, he asked me about church and missionary stuff, and we had a decent talk. But only God knows what seeds he's going to plant in his heart. But the point is, God has his ways. God has his ways, if we're willing. That's how he works in all of our lives at times, if we're willing, if we ask him. I don't know, maybe if I didn't ask him that night, I wouldn't have seen him. I'm not sure. But I know this, when you ask, God loves to honor that request because it's such a great request. It may not, may not be the right timing or something. It may not always happen, but that's the heart God wants from us. So he'll give anyone, regardless of gifts or abilities, the opportunity to share his good news. Again, if we are willing to obey his commands and his calling, and if we're willing to love him in return. That's the source of our power and motivation. And you know what's funny is that night I left, I drove home. After that conversation, I was filled up in a different way. I was full. Not because of the coffee and the carrot cake I had, but because God filled my day. Like it was no longer empty. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know what I'm saying. Whenever you've preached to anybody, whenever you, you've all had the chance at some point in your lives, and you know you felt fulfilled. And there's a certain peace and joy that come with that. And he fulfilled my prayer and satisfied my soul and let me participate in the harvest just a little bit. That's for all of us that are willing. You could be the most quiet person in the world. And when you pray for an opportunity, he might bring the other quiet, second most quiet person in the world to your table. Do you know what I mean? It's the one designed for you at that moment. God knows what he's doing. But so much it just takes to ask. So he wants us, God wants us, or, or that, to be our norm. He wants that to be our lifestyle. And for us to let him fill us up in the process with joy unspeakable, unexplainable. As we heard on Sunday, feeling full is something that we experience when we do for him. Feeling full is something we experience when we do for him. When we obey his commands out of love for him. And that gap is filled in your soul. On the board, the fullness of Christ. Jesus Christ went days without eating physical food, and yet he never worried about being sustained. He was always full. Jesus loved his heavenly Father so much that it was his joy to obey his desire to seek and save the lost. Where do you think Jesus got that desire from? He and the Father were one, right? He loved the Father so much that it was his joy to obey his command to seek and save the lost. And that can be our joy too, if we have the right motivation before him. Let's close with 1 Peter 1, verse 6. 1 Peter 1, 6. Again on the board, Jesus Christ went days 
without eating physical food, and yet he never worried about being sustained. He was always full. Always content, we might say. 1 Peter 1.6 In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Back to where we began this message tonight with the testing of Abraham. We will be tested by fire at times to see who we love the most in our hearts, to see where our affections lie. And going through this type of testing, the refiner's fire of our soul, we will come out the other side with joy inexpressible. Look at verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation or deliverance of your souls. So let's remember as we close, the Lord is always lovingly asking us, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? It's going to take us all a while. And that's okay. But that's what he's after. He's after our hearts. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your word, your grace, your spirit. We thank you for revealing the things that are most important to you. And Father, we ask that you help us increase our faith and hope and love in you. Show us supernaturally, Father, how to view these things, how to have the right perspective, and help us have our love for you be our greatest motivation in life. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.